children got a break. Mm. They got a break. We got to be with our families, you know? So many of us are so busy working, being productive, pleasing some white-led organization. Somewhere, somebody is getting the best of our energy. And for the first time in my life, there were months, months in a row, where I could just be with my children. And it's really, really nice to have that time. And I know a lot of people are suffering because, because they are with their children. But for those of us who have the privilege to have our most basic needs met so we can appreciate our kids, this, is, this feels like almost a strange kind of reparations, actually. Just your time, just having your time. Welcome to Decolonization Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This podcast is co-hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also find us at www.decolonizationinaction.com. This is Season 3, Episode 5, entitled Black Imagination with Natasha Marin. Natasha Marin is a curator, conceptual artist, and she does people-centered projects that have circled the globe and have also recognized and have been acknowledged by Art4, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The LA Times. Black Imagination is a community-based ongoing and continues to amplify, center, and hold sacred space for Black voices, including LGBTQIA, Black youth, incarcerated Black women, Black folks with disabilities, unsheltered Black folks, and Black children. Marin's viral web-based project, Reparations, engaged a quarter of a million people worldwide in a practice of leveraging privilege and the Black imagination. We talked about popular culture, literature, art, and her latest publication, The Black Imagination. Thank you so much for coming, Natasha Marin, to have this conversation and to have an intellectual exchange of minds Thank you. So you're an artist, academic, filmmaker, and writer, and your work calls across various themes, On uh, particularly most recently in your book on Black imagination. Can you tell me about your intellectual and creative journey? My intellectual journey would start with, you know, schooling with the kind of post-colonial single parenting that made education and higher education the only possible path. Um, it takes a while to kind of unlearn that. By the time I was unlearning that, I had already had a master's degree in English so and creative writing. So I don't know. Um, obviously, white institutions of higher learning, acknowledged learning, codified as knowledge is just that. You know, I don't know that the bulk of my growth happened in those institutions. I certainly got practice at critical thinking. Um but I was also subjected to all sorts of supremacist ideation, just being projected on my black body. And the intellectual journey is kind of more, more difficult for me to talk about because I'm not sure that I can attribute the, the appropriate bodies with my current sort of intellectual state. Um, I would have to credit the time I spent listening to black people and prioritizing black voices and 
black ideas and I don't know, I, I almost want to say like black conjurings across media, you know, whenever we are being created, putting our voice out there, um, whether that's as visual art or sound, music, or any other form, um, the time I've spent doing that has exponentially changed where I feel like I am intellectually. I feel like it's bang for your buck for less, you know, like to say kind of crassly, um, as a Black person, the time we spend other goal is so directly validating in ways that I did not experience in traditional, you know, white academia. The time I give myself with Black voices is the most intellectually and creatively stimulating time. My creative journey, sort of like how I got to the point where I'm like a conceptual artist whose medium is people, um, that was a roundabout journey as well. Well, I went to school for writing. That was a thing. I guess I thought I was going to be like a, a proper writer or a professor or something. What I saw did not encourage me to write. I saw in myth how you get to like a troll bridge and a troll makes you answer a riddle in order to cross. Like to be a writer, you have to suffer. And I didn't know if I was willing to make that trade. Like I didn't know if I was willing to spend a life sort of raking myself across the coals of my own consciousness in the way that it seemed like that is the writer's work to have no shame and to have nothing that you keep for yourself. And it seemed like artists, visual artists were having more fun. Um, it seems like their parties were a little less depressive. And so I kind of switched horses <laughs> and was like, well, let me go over here and see what it's like over here. I'm not particularly talented at like drawing or painting. So that always makes you feel weird within the realm of visual art. But I do think I work well with people and I am able to sort of compel and or convince people to try things that they wouldn't otherwise do together towards a, an end goal. And for me, what really started that off was I was doing midnight teas so the last midnight tea I actually did was in Berlin mm -hmm. and it was kind of the crescendo of the project, which I had started in 2008 and kind of crescendoed in 2018. But yeah, midnight tea was like very experimental, underground, non-religious, like art ritual, basically. So you would come to this event where presumably tea was being served and tea was served almost every time, except in Kentucky, where in Lexington, Kentucky, the guests preferred whiskey. So I just poured whiskey into teacups and we did our tea that way. But yeah, we would all get together and just kind of worship the creativity that's inside of all of us by participating in a, an art ritual. And that could look all sorts of ways. People would have different roles that they would enact. Um, sort of different characters in a play that's different every time. And I guess that was just a weird enough practice that now what I'm doing seems kind of like normal, if that makes any sense. Like gathering 12 people, iterations of 12 people together at midnight all over the world was kind of how I departed from like poetry on the page to poetry in real life, making like poetic environments 
And then that segued into how can I give myself permission to listen to black people as a job, as an art job, as a job I'm giving myself. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's what I've been doing since 2017. And I have no regrets and I don't think I'll be stopping anytime soon. What you said about your transition from writing into the arts uh, reminds me of Claudia Rankine when she wrote once, I don't write every day, I write when I want to write. <laughs> and part of what that evokes is that this idea of the suffering writer, the suffering poet, is very much a presentation that often privileges certain people based on class and race and other kinds of dynamics and to do it when you want to do on the terms that make sense as you've described for me is is very attractive and beyond that it adds another layer which is what you are doing not just through the what when you were doing the tea circles but now online a, a kind of virtual setting of virtual space is setting up a place where people can learn and listen with each other in a way that under capitalism, it can be quite hard to do, especially when there are a lot of loud talking heads in the broader political sphere. I guess one thing I wanna ask or t think about with you is, you know, in academia at least, or in the university setting, particularly at predominantly white institutions, there's a way in which theory is relegated to European intellectual thought, but that there are other forms of knowledge practices that help to shape blackness, black feminist theory, black radicalism. And I want to know, and then people who don't have a formal education who are part of that, I want to know in your opinion, who are the theorists, known and unknown, who are shaping your work? Wow, this is such a great question. Um, yeah, nobody that is shaping my thought is famous. So I would have to start there. You know, we're not talking Foucault's, we're not talking Derrida's, we're talking single black moms who have spent time thinking about blackness and femininity and how those two things concurrently and individually are never respected in the United States, are never cherished and never privileged. And what it's like to be sort of nurtured from a space of irrelevance into being. Well, you know, in the most obvious way right now, like today, part of today, the conversation um, among Black people in America is quite, <laughs> it's like half of us are talking about Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion and what ass pussy, which I have absolutely no problem with. And I just, I do not understand why black women are held to such high standards. Like I, I genuinely do not understand why we're super ready. We're just too ready to criticize black women for any reason, for whatever, whatever it is we're doing. Did Michelle Obama wear a shirt with her arms showing? Let's like freak out over it. Like as though we've never seen arms before. Like everything is just so heightened and reactive when it comes to sort of black femininity and, you know, cis black women's bodies and trans black women's bodies, just in any space, like Karen needs to call the cops all the time on it for whatever is happening. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, are we having a thought? So black people are kind of going through their own patriarchal motions there. With Biden nominating Kamala Harris, deciding Kamala Harris is going to be his VP choice for this upcoming election. Mm -hmm. 
now there's this conversation around like what is blackness that for me as a Caribbean person is maddening and I, I want to be myself off this planet because obviously Kamala is black. You don't have to like her. We don't like all the black people, okay? We're rooting for all the black people, but we don't like specific people. Like Kanye, we have not liked him for a while. Like he's been problematic pretty much since he interrupted Taylor Swift at the award ceremony. That was that was a while back, okay? But he's still a black person, so we still care about his mental health. We still want him to do well. We still want him to succeed and get the help he needs. But like, do we want to go on vacation with him? No. You know, we've got the um, Omarosas that were like caping too hard for Trump and then, you know, they look for that. We still want her to be well, healthy, alive, find, you know, work that remunerates her well. But do we want to hang out with her at a dinner party? Probably not, you know? All these people, even the black people we don't like, are black. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why it is blackness has to hold this space of exceptionalism all the time. It's really annoying. And I feel like the liberation we're fighting for is the opportunity to be mediocre and intersectional. Um, and, and thought of as beyond this monolithic, very small, codified idea of what blackness is. Blackness is humanity. It like actually is just regular, plain humanity. So black imagination was really, for sure, trying to underscore and re reiterate the fact that this isn't one shade of black. This isn't one like trauma porn of black. Like that's not what I'm interested in. Speaking of your book, uh, Black Imagination, it tries to approach the subject with ease. And in the book, you have an aff affirmative near the beginning, quote, close your eyes, make the white gaze disappear, end quote. However, you also, as a curator, I, I see uh, elements of your creation grounded at, in black empowerment and creativity within the different selections that and contributors that you have. So for example, one person who contributed, Erwin Thomas, writes, quote, a world where I am safe, valued, and loved is filled with youth who ask questions that adults have no fear to answer. Elders hold court on weekends to captive audience where entire communities share stories regularly. What does that mean to you that this person in their kind of interpretation of the prompt that you provided, uh, spoke about this question of intergenerational communing. I think it's interesting because there are different Black universes. In some Black universes, that is actually happening in the now part of now. It just apparently isn't happening in Irwin's universe. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that shows us sort of what we're almost allowed or what is accessible to us here as diasporic black folks in America. Um, we have been, what we were displaced from most originally was our indigeneity to the continent, to various countries and the continent, tribes, clans. And since the project is continuing, like it hasn't stopped. Black imagination is just like the book form in my mind, was the fourth exhibition of Black imagination, and it takes place in a book. What do conceptual artists do if not trick you into experiencing <laughs> all sorts of things, right? So I'm like, oh, it will look like a book, <laughs> and people will have, in fact, a community of Black people with them, encouraging them to listen. Um, -ha 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 -ha. 
It has a, an altar on the cover with an evil eye to keep the bad people away. It's basically a sacred object. So that's me giving myself permission to be non, non-mainstream, away from how other people do things. But for Irwin's world that, that's being conjured, I am hearing stories in like testimonies as part of the work of collecting and curating these voices that that are voices when they begin. So the whole project is audio that I then translate into text because I'm hearing actual people's voices. That's how the data is coming to me. So I'm hearing voices from outside of Kampala, Uganda, where I have a community curator who's been asking similar and different questions. And when when continental Africans are answering the question about origin, they are talking about regularly meeting in their family clan groups every year or more than that to listen to the stories of like who we are, where we came from, how did we get to this part of Uganda. So exactly the world that Irwin is imagining is also coexisting in other places, in other Black imaginations and Black realities. So that's kind of what struck me about that, is that what we, what we as diasporic Black folks are imagining is actually what we already had. We absolutely had access to those spaces pre-displacement. And now we have to fill in what we were removed from, all these pits you know, inside of us, we have to fill it in with imagination. We have to conjure a future memory, basically, of a time where we can go back to doing what we were doing before, you know, exploitative chaos ensued. Speaking of that reimagination, I want to turn to another contribution, Kiana Davis, who wrote, quote, the illusion is that we can rebuild here but this, the place that murdered our seeds, our mothers, our fathers, and divided us to close to the bone. We can't identify where we were ever connected. This is the place that turned us into familiar strangers. How can we heal in the very place that wants everything we have, but nothing of who we are? This excerpt from Kiana's contribution is so relevant today especially as people engage in a liberatory project on ab- black, like abolition, p- prison abolition, as well as um, defunding police, etc., and fighting for black lives in a full sense. The acknowledgement of the suffering, but then figuring out what does it look like and what does it mean to work in the space that has caused not only you harm, but your ancestors harm. What do you and how do you see this um, particular contribution by Davis as part of the broader project of the book, your book, uh, Black Imagination? It's it's one of my favorite. I mean, it's actually that's ridiculous to say. I should say everything in the book is like my favorite. It's like when somebody asks you, what's your favorite movie? And you're like, I love movies. So this is going to cripple my insides answering this question. But. Yeah, of all of my favorites, which are already in the book, because I listened to hundreds of people and then chose from those people, the people who are in the book, um, I I really love the last line about, you know, how this place wants everything of us and also nothing at the same time. Quentin Baker's piece also kind of addresses that in terms of theft, you know, 
He says, my origin is, a, is the origin of theft being put upon. And I mean, this is just me literally hearing his voice in my head and just quoting the little parts that are left floating around in my head. One thing that I think um, it, that your book tries to develop is 12 rituals of the Black Imagination Project and rituals of uh, healing, so the rituals of Black joy, the ritual of being unbothered, blessing your own heart, rehealing, and, and more. And in, I think this is so important for there to be this proactive way of focusing on practices, whether some, someone's atheist or spiritual or religious, whatever might be coming with people, to have that inward practice of the ritual to recalibrate and to heal and, and, and maybe use community for that work. How are you able to develop and think about having those, those rituals within the book? And why do you think that's so important for Black people who are dealing with the legacies and the traumas of racism? You really can't understand how religion has been inextricable from the colonial violence that has happened to our bodies. So making new territories for worship in all of the ways that that lands on your subconsciousness is absolutely the work of revolution. Like when people talk about ending generational curses, you know, there's a cute little t-shirt that's like, sorry, I'm busy. I'm breaking generational curses. When I had my first daughter and her dad and I decided to not baptize her, to not raise her with any religion. This was literally the generational curse that I was actually in real life breaking. That was 500 plus years of Catholicism doing its thing on my people. And doing its thing involved a lot. The guilt, the, the, the amount of children people had to have to like, and a lot of other sort of, I want to say taboo aspects. The violence there is just inextricable. And I know this is a roundabout way of answering your question, but the rituals were my attempt to build something of my own in the way that Kiana Davis talks about, like, how do we even start over in a place like this? It's like planting seeds in concrete, right? But you have to start somewhere. And for me, ritualizing self-care was helpful because I struggle with self-care. I struggle, struggle with showing myself mercy is actually how my therapist puts it. I'm, I'm happy to share that with folks because A, we can't all afford to have therapy. And B, sometimes I've seen literally the two words mercy and averse hit friends and family so hard that they're like, that's what's wrong with me too. You know what I mean? It's like, I can show mercy to everybody, but I can't show mercy to myself. And that's how internalized depression works. That's how, you know, the mass inside of us keeps going and laughing that big belly laugh. We are not letting ourselves be free um, of, you know, these family traditions, which are not really family traditions. Oftentimes it's just a tradition of us carrying on our own oppressions through Christianity or Catholicism or whatever. Of course, we can make a religion fantastic by putting our melanin on it. You know, we will make Jesus better than you ever thought Jesus was. Just let black people hold on to him for a second. How amazing, the best. But is that Jesus or is that us? You know, I think that's us. I think Jesus is just okay. But what 
we really brought some razzle dazzle to the Jesus as we do to everything that we touch or stand next to or breathe on. You know, that, that black girl, black person, black boy magic is, it's real. We are magical. We are also completely vulnerable and absolutely human. And part of our healing has to be recognizing that not everything that we've practiced has been for us, has helped us to grow and heal. And in many ways, this is a, a radical thought for people because we, we can see in our own families how religion and practice saved people in our lives, you know, like gave our grandmother hope, gave our mother a reason to like pick herself up after some abuse, you know, and go on. But that's the container of spirituality, not necessarily like what is inside of that container. So I think we need to have connections to our inner selves and to our macrocosmic sort of cosmic selves um, in some way. And religion takes that space up wonderfully. But when you examine the religion, if you don't see yourself, if you don't see yourself as represented as divine, that is not the best possible religion for you because you will always be subjugated, whether you realize it or not, you're not the end goal. Well, whoever God is, if you don't see yourself in God, like as God, as equivalent to God, you're continuing oppression in your own mind. You know, why is it that white people get to see themselves represented as God or angels or saints all the time? That's crazy. They don't need any more confidence building, okay? <laughs> but we definitely need to see ourselves as sacred, as divine, and we need to create our own practices to nurture that and grow it because it's revolutionary and it's new and it's different. And it's, it's actually a big return to where we were before we were taken. But I, I definitely feel like um, the rituals were purposeful in the fact that I wanted to allow myself a space of vulnerability to kind of create what I needed to ritualize care of the self, love of the self. And I think other folks probably need to go through the motions of ritualizing care of the self as well, whether or not they have any intention to edit their own religiosity, if that makes sense. Like it can be a both and, it doesn't need to be an either or. You can be as Christian as you wanna be while also carefully and at your own pace, asking yourself what it would take for you to see yourself as sacred, as divine. Thank you for that. I think one of the things that you kind of had me thinking about is Langston Hughes and specifically not just being sacred, but actually the question around around dreams. And one thing or a couple of things he said, one thing he said is hold fast to dreams for when dreams go life is a barren field frozen with snow. And I think that in this moment, especially as people are reckoning with so many changes in society, Dreaming is so important as part of the, the kind of praxis of imagination. I want to ask, so what are some of your acts of joy that you've engaged in in recent months? Given that there's a pandemic, there's, you know, racial strife, there is your, your parent and you indicated that it's not clear what the school system might be doing to open up. And, and I, I can imagine the anxiety that could happen of like, how do they open up safely so that your child or your children are comfortable and healthy? Despite all of the, the stuff that's going on, 
Um, yeah, how are you engaging in acts of joy as an artist, a parent, and everything? I have become increasingly superstitious in my grown-ass womanness. Um, so, like, the older I get, the more I am, like, giving myself to my very medadian propensity to be superstitious. And one of the things that I grew up hearing about was maljo or like bad eye, right? And like, you just kind of don't want to leave your joy where people can see it. Which is a weird thing for me to say because I've also been very public with black joy, like getting other people to do black joy meditations with me for 144 days at a time, and like really making black joy visible. But right now in my life, I am a believer in the evil eye. I am a believer that there are people out there in the world who are suffering and suffering, the state of suffering prevents people from being able to share joy. So joy is abundant and there's definitely not the idea that like someone else is happy or sorry, one single feather just fell from the sky next to me in the tree next to me in a very just dramatic, independent, full way. So I got very distracted by that. Just one solitary feather slowly twirling and landing in the tree next to me. But yes, plants are my sacred joy. Um, I'm in March. I had five plants. I think it was like three orchids and two somewhat other generic plants. Now I think I have like a hundred and uh, over a hundred plants in a very small um, apartment. Growing things. Growing things and sort of like nurturing something that can't talk back to you has been very fulfilling. Um, but it also reminds me again of this, like the displacement from our indigeneity. Like, of course we like growing things. We should have land to care for that is part of us, that is an extension of us. And that is something that we haven't had. On my birth certificate, my father is listed as a farmer. We definitely have connections to land and taking care of land, um, stewardship or whatever. Uh, I know that's a very white word and that's not the word I would choose, but just like taking care of your your mother as the land and yourself as the land. It's something that I feel like, I feel it in me, the way you would describe like maybe um, like a biological yearning to have children or something, you know, like I feel definitely disconnected from land as I spend more and more months in this apartment with my children, kind of terrified to leave, like low-key, not really wanting to go outside. I mean, wanting to be outside, wanting to be in the sunshine, wanting to be in nature, but also not wanting to be the Black body in the white city that is instantly the Black body, seen as the Black body, um, and made vulnerable as the Black body. And also in America, where people are just wantonly not taking precautions against COVID, um, there's just many reasons to not want to be outside where bad things can happen to you. And so inside, I'm making sort of like what feels more comfortable. And I literally do come from like an equatorial jungle. So I'm trying to manifest some sort of space for myself here that feels like I can grow. But a lot of my, my joys right now are secret, so I will not share them with you only because, and, and not you, like I just will not openly share them because I don't, I don't want to call 
to myself anything negative. I am I am learning a lot in the time that we've had to sit and think and reflect. I I definitely am of the school of crisis breeds innovation. So I I know that for for my people, for black people, this isn't the first time we've been at this rodeo. This isn't the first time we've encountered struggle or strain or challenges. So while everyone is kind of running around their arms lighting in the air, screaming and hollering, some of us are buckling down and concentrating on like, okay, what do I need to unlock for the next level? And that's what I've been doing. I've been unlocking some new achievements with myself. I'm really finally getting to the point where I understand what kind of what kind of things my body needs to function optimally. I've had enough space to reflect and see that. Um, I know what's a luxury and what's what are things that I would like to always include in my life now so much more clearly. Like I am a person that loves to travel. I have felt the groundedness of the United States. I have felt it in my bones. By now I would have flown away at least twice <laughs> to other places. Who knows where? Because I see the world as my as my family, as my big family, and I want to connect. And it's it's actually very quote unquote indigenous to allow yourself the priority of family and friends and going to them and being where with them. And I hear that reiterated by indigenous people all over the world that like friendship and family and that kinship is a right. It's like a birthright. Um, so I feel very isolated in the now part of now, not being able to be the rest of my family all over the world. And um, yeah, I'm just hoping, I'm hoping that people can, can do better collectively. But my joy is, the joys that I can share are the joy of seeing my children still healthy, uh, the joy of seeing my children relax. The, the beautiful thing about the way school has gone is that Black children got a break. They got a break. We got to be with our families, you know? So many of us are so busy working, being productive, pleasing some white-led organization. Somewhere, somebody is getting the best of our energy. And for the first time in my life, there were months, months in a row, where I could just be with my children. And it's really, really nice to have that time. And I know a lot of people are suffering because because they are with their children. But for those of us who have the privilege to have our most basic needs met so we can appreciate our kids, this is this feels like almost a strange kind of reparations, actually. Mm-hmm. Just your time, just having your time. Mm-hmm. So I feel I feel wealthy in time. I feel excited about believing in myself, which is a weird thing to say, but I feel like validation is the Shangri-La lots of us are going for. It's like, I am trying to learn how to validate myself, not validate myself through academic achievement, not validate myself through um, any kind of career achievement. Um, I don't want to necessarily have to validate myself by living up to some traditional standard of motherhood or anything like that or womanhood or you know whatever it is in me that I can celebrate having the space to practice that right now is 
I'm very grateful for that. Your answer reminds me of of Maya Angelou, who wrote, my mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive and to do some with passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. And I think it's important, uh, whatever ritual that we have, that you have, the, to really do that work of looking towards the community. And I think it's so interesting what you say about having the time, especially as a Black parent, and how that has been taken away from so many Black parents who don't often have the time or who've had historically, especially under slavery, their children taken away and told that they would be the next generation of, of laborers, free labor. So this is, you know, that time, as you brought it up, especially within the context of uh, being a parent, is, is so important. Before I let you go, um, are there things that you want the audience, particularly the listeners for the Decolonization Action Podcast, to know about your work in terms of things that are coming up or how they can connect with uh, some of the things that you brought up? Well, I'd love for people to think of Black Imagination of the book as an invitation. I would love for you to include, if you can, at least in the printed version, um, an invitation to share stories with me. Um, I, I will have more books. There will be a sequel to Black Imagination. And the stories I'm collecting right now are diasporic Black folks sharing their first experience on the continent. So stories of your first trip to a country in Africa as a diasporic Black person. And I would love it if you would include the invitation to share those stories with me. And you can share my email, nonwhiteworks at gmail, as a way for folks to connect. Um, Because I love listening to Black people. So I selfishly would love more reasons to sit at sort of the, the feet of our collective knowledge and and take in more and i would love to elevate more of these voices by publishing them so if folks would like to share their stories with me that is absolutely what i want to i think it's life-giving in both ways it's it's very validating to share your story to someone who's really listening Mm -hmm. and definitely cares and is interested in what you have to share and i think it's also very life-giving to listen and to receive other people's experiences as a way to understand yourself, your positionality, your blackness, you know. So yeah, that would be my my only plug. If you want to put a plug for me is please share your first trip to Africa stories with me, black folks, um, anywhere in the world. Um, and I I'm not even against like continental Africans sharing experiences of going to different countries and having their own experience included because I don't want it to be an exclusive invitation. It's an inclusive invitation. I just think that a lot of folks um, experience something kind of magical when when we go back, when we have the opportunity to go back and I'd like to collect all those magical little stories in a book. Great, thank you so much again for taking time for this interview. Thank you. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and you just listened to an episode of Decolonization in Action. This episode featured digitally based voices in Berlin and in Seattle, Washington. 
I would like to express my gratitude to the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science for their institutional support. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find out information about the people and events centered in reference, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please stay safe and healthy 